ocean fill and were the skies a parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the first four verses of Luke chapter 1 verse 1 for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us even as they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write it unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou didst know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Title this message, A Sure Declaration. You know, Luke, here in his gospel, you know, this debate about whether Luke is a Jew or a Gentile. Some believe he's a Jew and some believe he was Gentile. Nevertheless, Luke, we know, was a physician who traveled with Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Um, we'll look at that in a little bit. But, but Luke, in his gospel here, gives an accurate narrative, you might say, of the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of the greatest historical figure of all time. He is the most revered, and the most hated person of all time. Our calendar recognizes him. Our holidays pay tribute to him. A day of the week is set aside for him. Babies are dedicated or baptized, rightly or wrongly, in his name. Religions pay respect to him as a great leader, teacher, prophet. He has had and will have even yet the greatest impact in world history. The sad thing is, yet many really don't know him for who he is. To many, he's just a, a historical figure. But Luke doesn't present him as a historical figure. He presents him as the Son of Man, the Son of God. You see, many people confuse faith in Christ with getting religious. I'm going to read a lot of information this morning about apologetics, but there's a book I have, and uh, you know I don't really recommend the guy, but the book is a good book, a good good apologetics book. It's called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was an unbeliever when he was in college. And he met this group of young people who had 
knew what they believed and why they believed it. They were at peace with themselves. And so he began to go to their groups and uh, sessions. And one day he said to the lady kind of quietly so the rest of them couldn't hear, what makes you different from everybody else? He said she turned and looked him straight in the eye and said, Jesus Christ. He said, don't give me this religious garbage. I've heard all that stuff. She said, mister, I did not say religion. I said Jesus Christ. There is a big difference. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to look at this, a sure declaration. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity and privilege that we have to open your word. Thank you that we have your word recorded for us, inspired of God, passed down from generation to generation, preserved of thee, kept by the power of God. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, encourage us, and challenge us, help us to realize what we have in your word, in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Speak to our hearts, glorify yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think about this sure declaration or this narrative that Luke has given us, we'll notice several things. First of all, it was delivered, or this declaration was delivered by eyewitnesses. Notice it again in verse 2 it says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The word eyewitnesses, the Greek word is autopsis. It's a medical term. We would say autopsy. Speaks of a detailed examination. And as you think about an autopsy, go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. John, that beloved apostle, In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So he says, you know, the things that we have seen, we've heard, our hands have handled of the word of life. You know, they they had a, you might say, a detailed examination of who Christ Jesus was. He was a real bodily person. Before his death and after his resurrection. He was not just a phantom or a ghost as, as uh, 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 Gnosticism says. He was a body. He had a body. In Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Verse 36. Luke 24, 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith to them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. He said unto them, Why are you troubled? Why do the thoughts rise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. 
And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Uh, so he, he, he ate before them, as well as the, the, showed them his body. Uh, also, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Again, there's many, many testimonies to this fact. John 20, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas, remember Thomas said, you know, I, unless I see and thrust my hand into the side, I will not believe. Thomas with them, then came Jesus the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithful, faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Chapter 21, again verse 10, Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have caught, now caught. Simon Peter went and drew the net to land full of fish, great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet were not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. None of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh the bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. After that he was risen from the dead. And, of course, 1 Corinthians tells us that he was seen of the disciples in various cases and then seen of above 500 brethren at once. And then last of all, he was seen of Paul, Paul said. So they saw him. They, they had a detailed examination of him, if you will, and an autopsy, if you will. They saw him, his life. They saw him die. They saw him placed in a tomb. Uh, they... they, they uh, and, you know, after he was resurrected, they, they saw him, they touched him, they watched him eat. All these things they saw. By the way, it was not only they who saw. Go to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 32, And this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all our witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? See, and they heard this. He said, which, the, these things that, you know, which he did in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. And when they were confronted with it, they were pricked in their hearts. That word pricked means that it was to pain the mind sharply. They were pierced. 
to sting to the quick. You ever pick your fingernails and then you get to the quick? You see, they had witnessed many of the same things concerning Christ that the disciples had. Look at, uh, go, to, go to Luke chapter 22. There's, there's multitudes. There's many, many testimonies to this fact. Luke 22, verse 52. 22:52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders, which were come, out, come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, I was daily with you. John 18, verse 19. John 18, 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. You know, I've spoken openly. I haven't done anything secretly. Nothing. And when the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 was test, giving his um, uh answering his accusers and giving his testimony before King Agrippa and before Governor Festus in Acts 26, 26, he said this, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I spake freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. He's talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ. For which Paul was in chains. He said, these things weren't done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. In other words, I know you know about these things. I know you know about these things. By the way, Agrippa said, didn't say, no, I don't. But notice what he does say. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You see, he knew all about this, these things. You see, the testimony or this narrative of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and his birth were given to us by eyewitnesses. They had detailed examination of all things. It was also delivered to us by ministers. Notice again verse 2. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The word minister means servant. Means servant. Uh, the word also uh, also uh, means under rower. That's what a servant is. You remember the old battleships uh, of the Roman Empire, and 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 many times the, the slaves that they would capture, they'd make them under rowers. They were the ones that were down in the belly of the ship. That were were rowing and making that ship move. However, these servants or these ministers are a little different than that. 
Because these servants were not sold into, or forced into, or coerced into their service. They weren't even doing it to try and earn favor with God. They were doing it simply because they loved the Lord. They were willing servants. <coughs> the word servant, Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul said, wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, you know, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. And the word servant there, uh, Strong's describes it this way, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. You see, the apostles who were, were witnesses and, and ministers of the word who, who declared unto us these things, they, they, they gave their lives, they would stake their lives on these things. You know, would they stake that, these, their lives on a lie, knowing it was a lie? Think about it. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was with a, uh, killed with a sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. And we don't know for sure, but this history, most history, thinks uh, the, the way these happen. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. James, the Lord's brother, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, and then he wasn't quite dead, so they beat him to death. Thomas was thrust through with spears. Bartholomew was crucified. James we know from the book of Acts, was beheaded by Herod. Uh, Paul was either beheaded or sawn too. And Stephen was stoned, we know that. Uh, Luke, uh, according to history, was hanged in Greece. Would these, who were eyewitnesses, die for a lie, knowing it was a lie? Look at, look at Peter, what Peter says about this. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Peter said, We haven't followed cunningly or cleverly devised fables. There's a lot of people are following cleverly devised fables. We said, These aren't. These men gave their lives. And millions since have given all by their life and by their death. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, by Josh McDowell, he quotes Professor Thomas Arnold, who was a professor at Oxford University, and he says this, and I quote, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer 
than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Unquote. See, Luke says this declaration was delivered by eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. But secondly, we have a sure declaration that's been examined thoroughly. Now, you might say, well, you're repeating yourself. Well, not really. Notice verse 3. It seems good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, as we think about this perfect understanding here, it's the idea of a lawyer examining evidence. A lawyer examining evidence. And I would submit to you this morning that the Word of God, the Word of God invites examination. It invites it. It invites examination. In Acts 17.11, it says of the Bereans that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And the word searched means to investigate to examine, to inquire into, to scrutinize, to sift, to question. Strong says it specifically in a forensic sense of a judge to hold an investigation. So examine thoroughly. Luke says, these things have been examined thoroughly. In Acts 12, 19, here's how the word's used, examined. When Herod has sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers. First uh, Corinthians 2, 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually examined, or searched out, or investigated. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges, or that is, he examines all things. Robert Bale, or Vale, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. He's a, a J.D. I'd look up what J.D. is. It means Juris Doctor, or Doctor of Law. I got this off of apologeticspress.org. It's titled, A Prosecutor Looks at the Bible. Now, this Robert Beale was formerly served as District Attorney for the Washington County State's Attorney's Office in Maryland. And previously he maintained an active practice of the law. He currently preaches in Martinsburg, West Virginia. But anyway, in this article, a prosecutor looks at the Bible. He says this, The Bible is the most unusual and remarkable book we have ever encountered. It is unusual in that it claims to be the product of divine inspiration. This book has had a remarkable influence felt around the world for centuries. Uh, and as a prosecutor, I was required to examine cases with a critical eye, preparing them for presentation to a jury. All cases had their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and then, as and I'm not going to read all this, but then he says this. When I look at the Bible, I see a strong case for its inspiration. The evidence is not only compelling, it is overwhelming. 
The fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God as opposed to merely a work of man can be established in several ways. It can be established from a a philosophical standpoint, inasmuch as the derivation of truth and knowledge from God himself is consistent with an inspired revelation of his will. It can be established from a logical or rational series of arguments, or an historical study, or a survey of nature itself, which reveals God as well. But as a prosecutor, I am also impressed with the evidence of inspiration within the Bible itself. When when I look at the Bible carefully, I notice several things which strongly argue for its inspiration. Number one, when I examine the Bible, I see the Bible claims to be inspired by God. All scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, and so on. Uh, He says, I recognize that critics will object to the Bible's own claim of inspiration cannot be considered on the ground that you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. But such an objection would be overruled, for it ignores standard and accepted practice in other proceedings. We routinely allow the accused in criminal cases to speak for himself. Although in this country he is not required to do so, even in the civil cases where the burden of proof is much lower, we will allow the defendant to speak his own behalf when his character is called in question. If the Bible is to be so accorded a fair trial, its own claims of inspiration must be carefully considered along with all other evidence. Uh, and, and then he goes on, and he says, number two, when I examine the Bible, I observe the critics claim notwithstanding, the Bible is amazingly consistent with itself. Um, this is a grand procession throughout. The, this fact is actually very compelling when it is recognized that the Bible consists of 66 books written by approximately 40 different writers with varying and diverse backgrounds and over a period of 1,600 years. Uh, For example, the development of a grand theme with contributions made thereto in the earliest books of the Bible gradually unfolded and completed throughout the latter books. It is an amazing accomplishment and unexplainable without divine intervention. For example, in the earliest books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the writer introduces the concept of the Passover lamb with its many similarities to Jesus Christ. The male lamb was to be spotless and without blemish, a perfect specimen. It was to be killed by the shedding of blood, and the blood was to be applied to the dwelling houses of those to be saved from the final plague. The Passover feast itself contained remarkable similarities to the Lord's Supper, though instituted hundreds of years earlier. These attributes are interwoven with the manner in which the lamb was to be killed the actual shedding of blood, and the application of it to the houses of a selected people. How could these characteristics have been devised without a knowledge of what was to come? That is, how could the invention and detailed description of the Passover appendices have been accomplished by someone completely unaware of how these details would later align with the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the world? Of course, we call this typology, and the Bible is full of it. Look at the tabernacle. Now, in in Isaiah, it says that he would be without beauty and no man would desire him. Okay? Now, if you're going to look at the tabernacle and and its design and and look at it from the outside, you know what it looks like? Just a drab, ugly tent. But when you went inside, it was a different story. There's no beauty that we desire here. But the curtains were made of fine linen with gold woven into them. Linen speaks of purity and humanity. Gold speaks of 
deity. See, the whole thing speaks of Christ. And you know, there's things like this all throughout the Old Testament. By the way, the outside was badger skins of the tabernacle. It was no beauty, no beauty that we should desire him. Number three, when I examine the Bible, I see objectivity. Um, the Bible relates both the good and bad concerning its heroes. This is not typical of human works, although it can sometimes be accomplished with concerted, strained effort. But given the multiplicity of Bible writers, it would be difficult to explain how all of them succeeded in such objectivity. For example, the Bible says in Job 2.3, Still he holdeth fast his integrity, O thou thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now, it's not surprising that the Bible critics have seized upon this passage in an effort to disparage the God of the Bible and deny its inspiration. They claim the verse teaches that God personally set Job up for failure. Indeed, the verse on the surface seems to say this, and it is only upon deeper study of the verse within its immediate and more remote context that the true meaning of it appears. But why was the verse included in the first place? It would have been easy had the work been of mere human origin to avoid this and offer difficult sta- other difficult statements. Had we, in our limited wisdom, written uh, limited wi- uh, wisdom, been composing the Bible in an effort to palm it off as the work of God, we have would have included such would we have included such statements? The fact that these difficult passages appear in the text is strong evidence that it was not written by humans, unconstrained by high, but uh, unconstrained by our influence. There is an overarching hand which gives to the text a higher meaning, understandable only upon a reading of the work as a whole. The ancient Bible writers, who were not always private of these other clarifying passages, would not have written this way, but for the control of inspiration. In other words, since most of the Bible writers did not have access to the other portions of the Bible as they wrote, it's not likely they would have inserted statements, understandable only upon comparison with other portions. If they were writing with only their own uninspired wisdom, they would have omitted such passages altogether. By the way, you can really only understand Daniel by revelation. And there's many parts of the passage Bible like that. How do you understand Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 without Luke chapter 4? You really can't. Number four. I know this is kind of long, but if you want to copy this, I've got an extra copy. I can copy some of these. It, it's interesting reading. It, it's good thought for booking reading. Anyway, number four. Upon examination of the Bible, I notice what J.M. McGarvey, J.W. McGarvey, calls restraint of inspiration. There's many examples. Uh, essentially, we have people and momentous events of great interest to our human curiosity disposed of in brief sentences, leaving us longing for more. This, too, is unlike the work of uninspired men, who tend to run on and on about matters in which they have great interest. One would think, for example, that the biblical character of Samson, whose exploits have been of keen and thrilling interest to millions, would have been accorded more than three chapters. You're the strongest man in the Bible. There's only three chapters. Or, to use McGarvey's example, the death of James, one of the apostles, would have been described in great detail instead of only 11 words. Only 11 words. 
He's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He was beheaded. And God only records 11 words about it. How are we to account for this circumstance? The matters which seem less interesting and yet in the grand scheme of the book as a whole have greater significance are given more attention. Whereas the matters which appeal to our human curiosity but in reality have minor import in the overall story are passed over quickly. Number five, upon examination of the Bible, I see that it's uncanny in its accuracy. Like the old anvil, which withstands the blows of countless hammers, it proves to be correct time and time again. I recently watched a nationally known atheist and Bible critic debated the existence of God. Although referring to many embarrassing errors within the Bible, he produced none. I suspect he knew that such alleged errors have been put forth time and time again, only to be capably answered upon closer examination. No other book has been subjected to such treatment and withstood such attacks. And then last, I see, see in the Bible the most enduring of all books. It has long outsold all others, been treasured and preserved through the centuries as priceless work of wisdom, guidance. Countless generations have, have largely ordered their lives from its principles, been translated and proclaimed at great personal risk. Men have given their lives its proclamation. Uh, and what do I see when I examine the Bible? I see a book that I would not hesitate to take before any reasonable trier of fact, I'd be willing to submit it in a fair comparison against all others. I would not shrink from relying upon it. I am confident in its power and dependability. I see the marks of inspiration upon it and the hand of God within it. I see consistency, objectivity, restraint, accuracy, and endurance. In short, I see the inspired word of God. You see, the Bible has been thoroughly examined. Luke says, we have thoroughly examined these things. We thoroughly examined them. You know, as you think about Luke's writings, you know, archaeology is another thing that supports Bible evidence, gives evidence to the Bible. Uh, William Ramsey, who's, who's one of the leading archaeologists of our last century, it was in Asia Minor, and it says he doubted the historicity of the book of Acts. But after hundreds of hours of research, he began to change his mind. A careful study of Acts 14 led him to believe that Luke was quite familiar with places, people, and events about which he wrote. In this passage, Luke wrote about that Paul and Barnabas fled from Iconium to Lystra and Der Derby, cities of Lyconia. It formerly was assumed in ancient geography that Iconium was the city of Lyconia, like Montgomery is the city of Alabama. This passage was considered by most, some Bible critics to be a typical example of the lack of local exactitude by the author of Acts, and thus evidence against divine inspiration. However, as Ramsey went on to demonstrate conclusively, this was not the case. Iconium was not a part of Lyconia. Rather, it belonged to Phrygia, an entirely different district in Asia Minor. This change may sound like a minor point, but it's very important one of the thought of Ramsey. His attitude toward the book of Acts began to change radically. The more he studied Acts, the more he became an ardent advocate of the trustworthiness of Luke's scholarship so thoroughly examined God invites us to examine his word it has been thoroughly examined and and Luke says we I had perfect understanding I have thoroughly examined that I've researched this that is true and so thirdly we can instruct with confidence notice verse 4 that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. 
we can instruct from the Word of God with confidence. Because it's safe to believe the truth of the Bible. There is certainty there. The word certainty means undoubted or undisputed truth. It also is translated sometimes safety. Luke, in, in Luke 23, verse 47. Luke 23, 47. It says, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Uh, 24, uh, 27. 24, 27. And beginning, and here's Jesus. He's, he's going through the Bible. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded on them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now you think about that. Of course, Moses refers to the first five books of the Bible, the prophets. And then the Psalms, these are the three Jewish divisions of the Old Testament. In other words, it will include the entire Old Testament. And it says here that Jesus said to them, uh, and told them about the things that were written in each part throughout the entire Old Testament concerning himself. In other words, if you question one part, the whole is discredited. The whole is discredited. If you question one part or aspect of Jesus Christ, you know, there are many people that say, well, yeah, he's a good teacher. He was a a mighty prophet. No. He was either the Son of God or he was a liar and a sham. He cannot be both. Because he said, I and my Father are one. In fact, in Luke, in, in, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1, and verse 3, it says he showed himself by many infallible proofs. Because, again, Luke wrote that. That word infallible means indubitable. Indubitable. That's how you say it. Indubitable. I looked that word up. How, anybody know what indubitable means? I didn't either. In other words, it cannot be doubted. That's what it means. It cannot be doubted. It is patently evident or certain. It is unquestionable. Now think about it. These guys... Here is Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, and he's saying, which things you also knew, and whom you crucified, he hath made him both Lord and Christ. And you know what? Nobody denied it. And he's saying it to the enemies. Nobody denied it. Not everybody believed it, but nobody denied what he said. Now, if you were to tell a lie, and somebody knew about it, and they were your enemy, would they expose you for it? Especially when you're the ruling class and it makes you look very bad. 
for what you did to this person? So it's safe to believe the Bible. It is the truth. And we are, and this I know people don't like this word, but we are to indoctrinate ourselves with these truths. Now, I know the world doesn't like that word when we use it, but they do it all the time. What do you think public education is? It's indoctrination. Evolution is indoctrination. And it's a lie. Climate change is indoctrination. It's a lie. Some of them are actually trying to, uh, starting to admit it now. Even the Speaker of the UN said it was you know, going to bring about the most economic equality in the world. That's what climate change is all about, economic equality. It's not about climate. No, we are to indoctrinate ourselves in this truth. We are to be, he says, wherein thou hast been instructed. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman, and he is not to be ashamed, rightly divided in the word of truth. You know, who should we start with? Well, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 28.9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Now, I've got a picture of two people there in that verse. Moses Samuel. How long did Moses' mother have Moses? Basically until he was weaned. How long did did, uh, Hannah have Samuel? Until she weaned him. But those two mothers put the doctrine of God in the minds of those little boys. And they never forgot it. They never forgot it. And they never strayed from it either. Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us labor. The word labor. Again, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. The word you know, to indoctrinate means to teach. To study means to put diligent effort. And that's what labor means. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall off the same example of unbelief. You know, we have to labor to have the rest of God, to understand, and that comes by understanding Him. Second uh, Peter one ten. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail. Second Peter three fourteen. Wherefore, beloved, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace without spot. And blameless. Oh, we are to teach and doctrinate ourselves with the truth. John said this as he closed his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30. May the other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And then again in chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony 
is true. We know. We are certain. In 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given unto us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Luke said, I've written a sure declaration. What I've written is true. It's been thoroughly examined and established by facts which will never change. This is, this one I'm writing about, this is the Lord and Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Acts 2.36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see, we can have confidence in this book. It is true from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. In heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus Christ is who he has said he is. It is one of the most established facts in history. You know how Josh McDowell became a Christian? Those same group of people challenged him and said, Prove him wrong. And he took up the case. And Jesus Christ proved him wrong. And I would say to you this morning, Prove him. And you'll find him true. You'll find him true. Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you had a time in your life when you realized you're a sinner and trusted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior?